Chapter 10 Restitution, Repentance, and Restoration If a man shall steal an ox or a sheep and kill it, or sell it, he shall restore five oxen for an ox, and four sheep for a sheep. If the theft be certainly found in his hand alive, whether it be ox or ass or sheep, he shall restore double. Exodus 22, 1 and 4 Men have failed to understand the fundamental goal of biblical law, restoration. Restoration between God and rebellious man, and restoration between the criminal and his victim. Rush Dooney writes, quote, Emphatically, in biblical law the goal is not punishment, but restoration. Not the infliction of certain penalties on criminals, but the restoration of godly order. End quote. Biblical law alone cannot restore sinful man to God, but it does serve as a reminder of our need for a way to repay God fully. Biblical law reminds us that we are dead in our sins, Romans 7, 9-13. Biblical law points to the work of the kinsman redeemer, Jesus Christ. Just as sinners need to be restored to God, the criminal needs to be restored to his victim. His victim is the representative and symbol of God, for all sin and crime is ultimately an attempted attack on God, the primary victim. This is why the criminal is required by God's law to make restitution to his victim. Double restitution restores the victim's economic position prior to the crime. Plus, it increases his holdings to compensate him for the trouble the crime caused him. He is as fully repaid as the court system can lawfully determine. At the same time, making economic restitution restores the criminal legally and psychologically. He knows that he has paid his debt, not just to society, but to his victim. He is made clean, analogous to the cleansing the sinner experiences when he accepts Jesus Christ's payment of his sins at Calvary. He is given a fresh start. The restoration of peace between criminal and victim is accomplished by the criminal's payment of double restitution to the victim. Once this payment is made, the victim has no additional legal claim against the criminal. The matter is legally settled. Any attempt by the victim to extract anything else from the criminal is illegitimate. This is the legal basis of the criminal's covenantal restoration to society. Restitution is good for the victim, good for the criminal, and good for society. When biblical law is enforced, innocent members of society can feel more confident about their lives and property because the state is obeying God and punishing criminals in a way that preserves the Dominion Covenant. They can work hard, knowing that the state is working to reduce crime and help them keep the fruits of their labor. At the same time, the criminal now knows that his debt is paid and that the one of the burdens of guilt is removed. He can then return to a lawful calling and begin to exercise dominion as a free man. This is what Rushduni means when he speaks of restoration as a means of maintaining godly order. The restoration of peace with the victim is not the same as restoration of peace with God. It is analogous to this restoration, but not the same. What we must say as Christians is that double restitution to the victim is necessary for the criminal's restoration of wholeness before God, but it is not sufficient. Not only is double restitution to the victim needed, so is repentance before God. This raises a difficult question for biblical social order. To what extent should the civil government be involved in encouraging or enforcing repentance before God? The Problem with Enforcing Repentance The Bible teaches the need for restitution, repentance, and restoration. 
Only the first can be legitimately required by civil law. The criminal must make outward restitution to his victim. No matter what his inner feelings are, the state should lawfully enforce this. But it cannot enforce repentance, for this would involve the God-prohibited claim of the state to be God. The state is not God. Its officials cannot know what is in men's hearts. Nevertheless, when a criminal today is sentenced, a reporter will sometimes add these words. He showed no signs of remorse. This indicates that even in modern secular times, we, potential victims, expect criminals to show signs of repentance. Second, the criminal is morally required by God to repent and to declare himself completely at the mercy of God. The penalty for failing to do this is an eternity of punishment in God's fiery prison, from which there is no escape. No human government can lawfully enforce this required repentance, as we have seen. Third, in response to both external restitution to the victim and internal repentance before God, God restores the sinner to wholeness. This is the gift of God's grace. It must be stressed that the state cannot legitimately require the internal act of repentance. Officers cannot know the criminal's heart. Men cannot and must not try to enforce repentance. Our laws cannot legitimately be written in terms of the internal state of a person's mind. The state also cannot legitimately require a public statement of theological faith from all its residents in a society. The stranger within the gates may believe what he wants about God, man, and law. This does not mean that the state cannot legitimately require a statement of faith from those who seek citizenship and therefore the right potentially to serve as judges within the gates. If a person is not covenantally under law, he should not be allowed to become a judge, voter, juror, civil magistrate, who places others under that law. The covenant is hierarchical. To rule, we must also serve. To enforce a law order, we must be under it. This may sound strange to Christians who for some reason still believe in the humanist myth of morally and religiously neutral law, but everyone in the United States is governed by a humanist version of this covenantal principle of hierarchy and oath. In the United States, citizens are required to uphold and defend the Constitution, while they make no profession of allegiance unless they serve as civil magistrates of some kind. Merely by being born in the U.S. or in a family of U.S. citizens, they legally become citizens. Some Christians may not believe in infant baptism. The child's possession of non-voting church membership from the day of his physical birth, but all Americans affirm an analogous civil principle of a child's non-voting civil citizenship. The child is protected by covenant civil law. Aliens are required to make no such profession of civil faith, implicitly or explicitly. They are required to obey the terms of laws that are based on the Constitution, but they are not required by law to swear that they will uphold and defend the Constitution. This is the main reason why foreign citizens should be exempt from military conscription. Soldiers, as covenanted officials of the national government, are required to uphold and defend the Constitution. They wear the marks of their civil office, uniforms, and carry swords, weapons. The state can legitimately claim only the right to compel outward conformity to the law, including the law of economic restitution. Outward conformity to the law is sufficient to create the conditions of external social order. This is the function of civil government, the preservation of external social order through the administration of justice. At the same time, we must recognize that apart from widespread inward repentance, no social order can be preserved in the long run, 
for men will chafe at the requirements of God's law, including the law of restitution. Men will not honor God's law indefinitely, apart from widespread conversions. Regeneration ultimately undergirds long-term social order. Nevertheless, it is not the state's function to seek to enforce inward regeneration. The state is not the Holy Spirit. I dearly hope that the analysis puts to rest the nonsense about the Christian Reconstruction Movement's supposed attempt to force everyone to become a Christian. This lie has been spread by a handful of people who know it is a lie, and then by many people who think it is the truth. The founders of Christian Reconstructionism, being Calvinists, have always maintained that God forces people to become Christians through His irresistible, regenerating grace. For without this regenerating grace, people cannot accept the message of the gospel. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, according to 1 Corinthians 2.14. We take this verse literally. It is God's sovereign and exclusive power to force men to believe in the saving work of Jesus Christ. Therefore, no human institution can lawfully compel such faith. For anyone who is curious as to why Christian Reconstructionism came out of historic Calvinism, here is a good place to begin looking for the answers. It is precisely because the founders of the movement were Calvinists that Christian Reconstructionism has never taught that the civil government should force residents of an ideal Christian commonwealth to believe in any particular religion. Every state can, must, and always does establish standards for citizenship judgeship that are based on some kind of religious belief. For all law is at bottom religious, but no Christian state can legitimately establish a profession of Christian faith as a standard for law-abiding residency. Restitution to God In the case of a murder or an accidental death that looks as though it might have been a murder, the victim cannot prosecute the covenant lawsuit. The Old Testament specified that the victim's nearest male relative, the goel, meaning the one who held the dual office of kingsman redeemer and blood avenger, should prosecute the case either directly by killing the suspect in the highway or in the court of the city of refuge to which the suspect had fled, or outside the walls of the city if the suspect left the protection that the city offered, Numbers 35, 16-27. If there was no known suspect, then God became the goel, who would prosecute the closest city to the suspected place of the murder. Jesus is the kinsman redeemer in history, and he is therefore the blood avenger. He is God's lawful representative who brings God's covenant lawsuit against humanity, prosecuting the covenant lawsuit both in history and at the final judgment. As the holder of this crucial office, he also made the required restitution payment to God. We must begin with the assumption that God requires this restitution payment. If we do not assume this, then Christ's death at Calvary becomes a case of cosmic overkill. The concept of biblical justice requires that civil judges act as representatives of God, the victim, and the community in this order. We see this in the Old Testament's requirements in the case of an unsolved murder. The elders of the nearest city, not the priests, were required to sacrifice a heifer, wash their hands over its carcass, and announce, Our hands have not shed this blood, neither have our eyes seen it. Be merciful, O Lord, unto the, thy people Israel whom thou hast redeemed, and lay not innocent blood unto thy people of Israel's charge, and the blood shall be forgiven them. Deuteronomy 21, 7 and 8. The priests came near to bless the elders, but they themselves did not conduct the sacrifice. Verse 5. The judges served in this case, 
as the lawful intermediaries between God and the city. They had been unable to locate the murderer, and the victim's blood cried out to God for vengeance. Genesis 4.10 This language of animate blood served in the Old Testament as a covenantal symbol of the relationship between God and the dead victim. Because there was no identifiable culprit, God became the legal spokesman for the victim. Why? Because the victim in his capacity as victim had served the murderer as a judicial intermediary of God. Killing a human being is attempted murder of God, for men are made in God's image. This is the basis of capital punishment for murder, Genesis 9.5. God therefore became the blood avenger, Goel, of the victim in case of unsolved murders. And he threatens the community that refuses to acknowledge that a major crime against him has been committed. Guilt was to this extent collective, not in the sense that the local community was responsible for the murder, but in the sense that God required ritual expiation for the murder, which had been an indirect attack on his own image. The elders had to acknowledge, ritually, that God is the ultimate attempted victim of all crime, but especially murder, and that he is therefore owed restitution. The restitution payment in the form of a bloody sacrifice was the legal basis of the restoration of peace between the local community and God. Who is the intended victim of all sin? God is. Men break the law of God to express their own autonomy as lawmakers and law interpreters. Thus, restitution is always owed primarily to God, which He collects in history and at the final judgment. But crimes are public acts. God has established intermediaries to enforce the law. To the extent that a crime is committed against anyone, the victim becomes God's legal representative since the crime was ultimately an attack of God's holiness. The victim becomes the God-designated agent who prosecutes God's covenant lawsuit against the suspected criminal. He acts as God's agent primarily, and as his own agent secondarily, as a secondary victim. What if the victim as God's agent as the secondary victim refuses to prosecute? I see no warrant in most cases for the state than to prosecute. The court can lawfully serve as the agent of the victim in certain exceptional cases. Two examples would be victims who are orphaned, minors, or mental incompetence. Nevertheless, under normal circumstances, a decision not to prosecute by a victim who is legally competent to initiate a covenant lawsuit is a binding decision. He thereby loses his legal claim on any future restitution payments by the convicted criminal. If he is willing to suffer this loss, then the state must honor his or her decision. The individual, not the state, is the victim. The principle of victim's rights is binding on the state. Only if the criminal act in some way also injured the state or society could the state then prosecute, but only on its own behalf. The witness also serves as a, as a potential redeemer for the criminal. His public testimony allows God's representatives to bring judgment in history before God brings it in eternity. This was Paul's argument for telling the Corinthian church to prosecute the incestuous member, to deliver such as one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus, 1 Corinthians 5.5. 5. While men are alive in history, they can be brought into the covenant. Judgment in history is one way of bringing them in. God told Ezekiel something very similar regarding the role of a prophet. Son of man, I have made thee a watchman unto the house of Israel. Therefore hear the word at my mouth, and give them warning from me. When I say unto the wicked, Thou shalt surely die, and thou givest him not warning, nor speakest to warn the wicked from his wicked way, to save his life, 
The same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at thine hand. Yet if thou warn the wicked, and he turn not from his wickedness, nor from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but thou hast delivered thy soul. Ezekiel 3, 17-19 The Old Testament prophets served as an agent of God's ecclesiastical and final courts. The witness in ancient Israel served as an agent of God's civil court. The covenant keeper today has the office of prophet, for he possesses God's word. He can lawfully bring an ecclesiastical covenant lawsuit against God's enemies within the church and a warning of, ex- of eternal judgment to those outside. He is also a prince, for he can be a witness in civil trials. He can bring a civil covenant lawsuit against civil lawbreakers. He is the defender of God's interests. If he refuses to serve in these offices, then he becomes God's victim. The blood of the guilty will be on his hands. God warned Ezekiel, as well as the blood of the innocent. Concern for the victim Concern for the victim rather than with rehabilitation of the criminal often marked what today are dismissed as primitive societies. English common law has also tended to focus on retribution, not the rehabilitation of the criminal. It seeks to punish men in specific ways for specific evil acts. There is a tight relationship between the nature of the crime and the kind of punishment administered by the civil authorities. Justice is concerned with measures, which is why the goddess of justice is pictured as a blindfolded woman holding scales. Punishment is measured out in terms of the severity of the crime. In contrast, modern humanistic theories of jurisprudence in the name of humanitarianism to a great extent have promoted a messianic view of the state. Professor Lon Fuller has summarized the contrasting views and the heart of the controversy in the assertion of the ability of the state to recreate man. Quote, The familiar penal or retributive theory looks to the act and seeks to make the miscreant pay for his misdeed. The rehabilitative theory, on the other hand, sees the purpose of the law as recreating the person or improving the criminal himself so that any impulses toward misconduct will be eliminated or brought under internal control. Despite the humane appeal of the rehabilitative theory, the actual processes of criminal trials remain under the dominion of the view that we must try the act, not the man. Any departure from this conception, it is feared, would sacrifice justice to a policy of paternalistic intervention in the life of the individual. End quote. This fear is well deserved. Continual interventions into the lives of men by a self professed omniscient paternalistic state are precisely where a legal theory of trying the man rather than his acts do lead. A jury can make the criminal pay for his crime by paying the victim. Members of the jury can make reasonable estimates of the economic effects of the convicted criminal's acts. On the other hand, jurors cannot read the convicted criminal's mind. All they can do is draw conclusions regarding his intentions based on the cross-examination of public testimony and evidence that was obtained legally. When men try to read other men's minds, the result is tyranny. Restitution by the criminal to the victim is one way of restoring wholeness to the victim. It also reduces the likelihood of private attempts at vengeance. It is a way of dealing with guilt. In this sense, it is also a means of restoring wholeness to the criminal. Israel's History Israel's history can legitimately be classified in terms of a series of incidents by which this threefold relationship, restitution, repentance, and restoration, 
was illustrated in a covenantal, communal, and national way. Israel's deliverance from Babylon is a good example of this restorative process. It is also illustrated in the instance of David's adultery and murder of Uriah the Hittite. David repented, 2 Samuel 12.13. The child died, 12.18. And so did three of his adult sons, Ammon, Absalom, and Adonijah, thereby making fourfold restitution on a four lives for one basis. Fourfold restitution was the required payment for the slaughter of a lamb, Exodus 22.1. Nathan, the prophet, had used the analogy of the slaughtered ewe lamb in his confrontation with David, 2 Samuel 12.4. David recognized that the culprit was worthy of death, verse 5. David, therefore, could not escape making the fourfold restitution payment to God's sense of justice. Adultery and murder are both capital crimes in the Bible. And David and Bathsheba were covenantally restored in their marriage, which God testified to publicly by the birth of Solomon, 1224, who became the lawful heir of David's throne. We must understand capital punishment as a restitution payment to God. The death penalty is not a means of revenge alone or deterrence alone. The death penalty is God's required restitution payment, which is imposed on Adam and his heirs, and was imposed also on the second Adam, Jesus Christ. For any civil crime too great to be compensated for by a monetary restitution payment to the human victim, God requires the civil magistrate to impose the death penalty, God's restitution payment. Homicide, for example, cannot be paid for in Israel by anything less than the life of the murderer, life for life, Numbers 35.31, a law which is without parallel in the laws of the ancient Near East. It was only later rabbinic Judaism that abandoned the principle that all murderers are subject to the death penalty in order to reduce the penalty for Jews who kill resident aliens or Gentiles. Christian Theology Restitution, repentance, and restoration are equally fundamental concepts in Christian theology. Without Christ's restitution payment to God for the sins of mankind, there could have been no history from the day Adam fell. Without repentance, the individual cannot claim to be free from the requirement to make the restitution payment to God. Eternal judgment is God's lawful vengeance on all those who have not made restitution, meaning all those who have not placed themselves at the mercy of God by claiming to be under Christ's general repayment. The righteousness of God is demonstrated by His eternal punishment of those who have not made full restitution. The punishment fits the crime of ethical rebellion against a sovereign, holy God. Restitution in Recent American Jurisprudence Various forms of restitution have been adopted by civil governments for centuries. Experiments by state and local governments in the United States since the mid-1970s also indicated that such a system can provide significant benefits to victims. The state of Minnesota began its experiment in October of 1973. Based on one year's data, researchers made a study of opinions and results. Restitution was a condition of probation of the criminals in one-fourth of all probation cases. Quote, Restitution was used in a straightforward manner by most courts. Full cash restitution was ordered to be paid by the offender to the victim in more than 9 out of 10 cases. Adjustments in the amount of restitution because of limited ability of the offender were rare. In kind, or service, a restitution to the victim or community was ordered in only a few cases. End quote. The program was limited primarily to nonviolent criminal offenders who were considered able to pay which generally meant white, middle-class criminal offenders. This limits the empirical 
reliability of the conclusions concerning the overall effectiveness of the program. Also, the amount of restitution was limited to the amount of the economic loss by the victims, not twofold restitution as required by the Bible. The original state-level trial program was dropped in 1976, but the principle has been instituted at the local level. Judges in every jurisdiction now impose restitution as a penal sanction. The summary report states that, quote, most judges and probation officers favor the use of restitution. Similarly, most judges and probation officers expressed the belief that restitution had a rehabilitative effect, end quote. Furthermore, quote, most victims believe that restitution by the offender to the victim is the proper method of victim compensation. Victims who were dissatisfied tended to be those who felt that they had not been involved in the process of ordering or aiding in the completion of restitution, end quote. And perhaps most revealing of all, quote, most offenders thought that restitution as ordered was fair, end quote. Only 10 of the offenders, 14.4%, would have preferred a fine or a jail sentence. It is understandable why we have seen a renewed interest in restitution as a form of punishment. Conclusion Social order requires that there be legal means of the restitution of peace between criminal and victim. If the crime is so horrendous that no economic restitution payment from the criminal is sufficient to compensate the victim, then God requires capital punishment. The maximum restitution payment which God collects personally because he was the ultimate target of the criminal. Most crimes in the Bible are not capital crimes, however. The focus of biblical law is on economic restitution as the means of the restoration of social peace. The victim's interests are primary, God's and the actual human victim. Because God brings judgments in history against towns and nations that refuse to enforce His civil law order, the community needs representatives to uphold God's law, witnesses and judges. They represent the claims of God, the victim, and the community against the criminal. In civil courts, they prosecute God's covenant lawsuit in the name of God, the victim, and the community. God warns that if the victim's rights are not upheld, he will execute judgment against the criminal and his ally, the community. The community must choose, just as Adam did, either to prosecute God and the victim by siding with the criminal, actively or passively, or to prosecute the criminal in the name of God and the victim. To do the former is to leave the blood of the innocents on the community.